Well, good morning, everyone. Good to have you here this morning. If you're uh, visiting with us, welcome here. We're obviously full-blown into summer because we're probably missing half our people at any given time. And, uh, but that's fine. People need to get away and get a break. And uh, I hope that you do get a chance to enjoy your family and get some time away while the weather is gorgeous. If you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you. Uh, we're going through the Gospel of Mark in our studies, and part of the reason for that is because I believe that uh, Mark chapter 10 really captures the heart of Jesus' attitude towards life, and that is that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And uh, one of my favorite statements is, God is not the least bit interested in volunteers, he wants servants. Uh, we may volunteer our time for programs, but he is not the least bit interested in volunteers, he wants servants who came to give their life for the cause of the gospel. And so that's why we are going through Mark. Our vision frame for this year is a lot about using generosity and good works to connect and build relationships with people that haven't seen the hope of the gospel and uh, to use that in order to um, find a way to communicate that same gospel. Uh, for those of you that are part of our disciple-making team and interested in growing in life-to-life disciple-making, we're meeting in 107 after the service for about 45 minutes. We have some uh, really cool stories that we won't need you to hear, and we're going to reinvent, uh, recommunicate kind of our next steps in that journey. So if you have been part, signed up for it, and uh, wondering what our next step is, I invite you to be with us uh, in 107 after the morning. Before we step in, I'm going to invite you to bow with me, and let's pray before we step into the scriptures. Well, Father, thank you for, again, this privilege that you have given us to have a relationship with you. We never want to take that for granted. We have realized, even as we sung this morning, the tremendous cost that it cost you in order for us to have that opportunity to step into your presence and know that we will be fully accepted, not based on our own merits, but because of the righteousness of your son, who sacrificed his life and was horribly abused and crucified because the punishment for us is too weighty for us to carry. We ask that you will continue to reinvigorate our heart by your spirit to align our hearts and minds and our thoughts to eternal things. And as we will see this morning that as 1 John chapter three would say, those who will continue to set their eyes fixed on Jesus will purify themselves just as he is pure. We ask that you will help us to understand the real heart of the matter as we see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees and scribes and that you will again help us to look at our own lives first in the mirror of your word and help us to be able to know the things the Spirit of God teaches us that we need to change in us so that we might be a reflection of your grace and glory. And so for all of this we pray as we continue to step into uh, your scriptures and your revelation, and we give you thanks for the privilege to do it this morning in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 7. We're going to step into verse 14. You have to realize this is kind of in the middle of a conversation. Mark chapter 7, verse 1, really began this discussion that Jesus was having with some of the Pharisees and the scribes, and he did not have very many kind words to speak to them about. Uh, in fact, uh, he is attacking the whole issue that in addition to God's word, which they knew pretty well, they had created all kinds of traditions and rules and regulations and procedures that the people were then inflicted by because they were the religious leaders and the ones that had the most influence. They had created their own religion 
to impose upon people that was not really what God's word commanded them to do. And so Jesus, in the midst of this discussion, basically accuses them the way Isaiah uh, sort of condemned the people of Israel back in his time, where he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, but in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, uh, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And so we discover one of the most dangerous things that can happen in our own life is that we can submit ourselves to teachings and traditions that really aren't part of God's word. Obviously, the people you're going to be most concerned about are people like me, who stand up every week and proclaim messages and teach and say this is what it means and this is why we constantly advocate studying the Bible and learning how to study it well so that you're not taking my word for it. You know this is the things that we talk about, reaffirm what the scriptures say. But sometimes the people we need to worry about isn't us, it needs to be yourself. Because sometimes you create your own teachings and your own traditions and your own convictions about what you think the scripture says, but it doesn't really say that. That's just what either we've grown up with and was taught, those are things that maybe we've heard, we've uh, maybe heard something from somebody we greatly admire and we think that's a great idea. And there's always a danger, which we'll show later in our morning, where we can actually create traditions that doesn't really get to the heart of the matter the way Christ talks about here. Starting in verse 14, it says this, and Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. And the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them, since it enters into not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, and therefore he declared all food clean? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of humanity, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within, and this is what defiles a person. I was reading a story from Ted Haas. Uh, he was relating a, a, a TV show called uh, Clean House. And what these people did is they, they would get uh, these individuals who were basically hoarders and either because of the family's help or for some reason they got contracted to come in and help get things cleaned up. So they would go through this procedure where they would go in and do an assessment of the house and usually everything had tons of stuff in it. For most outside viewers it just looked like a complete house of junk. For them... The reason they kept everything is everything has some kind of sentimental value, some kind of meaning to them that they didn't want to depart with. They would uh, go through this process, they would try to sort out things the family could keep in a reasonable manner, and they would either donate, sell, or throw in the garbage other things that were going on. They, but the, the, the task of going into a home that, of a hoarder, I don't know if you've ever had that privilege, no, I don't know if you've ever had that challenge, but it is daunting. Uh, my wife and I had a friend that passed away several years ago, went back to Portland uh, because one of the youth groups that uh, 
kids that were in the youth group became the executor and they asked us to come and help. And it was literally overwhelming. This person had 16 artificial Christmas trees in the attic. They had over 300 uh, VHS tapes in their library. They had more ornaments for Christmas trees than the, the stores had. I mean, they had thousands of things. It was just absolutely overwhelming. And so to sort through, to figure out what to keep and what not to keep was absolutely daunting. In this story, Ted Haas says this, in the spiritual realm, there comes a time for each of us to take inventory of what's in our hearts. Get rid of some things and do some repairing and remodeling. Like the families on Clean House, we have an expert in remodeling and renovation. His name is Jesus. The problem that you and I both face is that we often become very comfortable with our own clutter. Probably the worst case scenario that we ever face is that we give ourselves permission to have secret sins that really don't seem to harm anybody, but they're still there. And we've become masters at justifying their existence because I either have given up trying to deal with it because I've failed so many times, or it's not that big a deal anyway. Jesus forgives, and so we'll just live with the indulgence. What Jesus does in this particular passage is that he attacks the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes really at the heart of the issue. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but he brings us back to the heart of what the really issue is with us in our relationship with God. And so as we begin to work through this, let me state the principle or the parable that he says at the beginning, which is this. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person is what defile him. Now you might think that's a pretty elementary and obvious fact. It's kind of like, well, duh, who wouldn't get that? Well, I know some churches that don't get this at all, that everything is about conformity. It's about rules and regulations and dressing properly and following certain formats and practices. I know churches that are so devoid of the heart of Christ that everything is what we would call legalism to the core, and they've told people their entire life that spirituality is about external conformity. It's about fitting the mold in the community expectations and has very little to do with a love relationship with Jesus. When we begin to look at this particular passage, we might have been distracted a little bit by the fact that the text says that the disciples asked Jesus about the parable. You might go back looking for it going like, wait a minute, what parable are you talking about? I didn't see a parable in there. Let me remind you of a couple things before we step into the meat of the text. A parable can be a couple of different things and I just want you to make sure you're not distracted by that. It is something that serves as a model or an example pointing beyond itself for later realization. In other words, it's a type or figure usually indicating a greater spiritual truth. So when we talk about the Good Samaritan, you go, okay, I get that. That's a parable. That's a, that's a story Jesus created to communicate a singular significant truth about who's my neighbor that, that, that was asked of him, and he used somebody that they would not necessarily be a neighbor to to demonstrate the love and mercy of God to people that we might say doesn't deserve it. And we go, yeah, I get that, that's a parable. But in this particular case, it's more of a, nar- a narrative or a saying, and it can have a variety of different lengths to it. In fact, it's meant to illustrate or state a simple truth, and it can be a comparison, a simile. Uh, it might be just a proverb or a stated principle. 
So the, the disciples aren't really confused by it, but the principle comes back to this. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. This is the parable. This is the principle. This is the truth that Jesus is teaching on. And his basic statement that he, we're going to discover as we think about this is that the problem isn't external to us. The problem is inside of us. Uh, that one's a little tough sometimes for us to live with because in our culture, we have an attitude that everybody is essentially and basically good. It doesn't matter where you're at or what you do, what your social economic staff, frankly, it doesn't even matter what religion you are. There's, everyone has this basic prevailing attitude that everyone is basically good. It doesn't matter how much we struggle with our identity. It doesn't matter what kind of sins we do. It doesn't matter what permissions we have. There is this profound attitude that everyone is basically good. There is a problem with that, of course, and as you begin to sort of explore, at least biblically, what that means, is there's a, pro there's a, there's a problem with thinking that we're basically good. Now, a little bit of theology, we have three basic enemies that we have to deal with for those who've put faith and trust in Christ. One is what we call the flesh. Now, and even in scripture, that, depending on the context, can mean a lot of different things. It can mean my physical body, that I have this flesh and this body that I live in. It's not bad in and of itself, but it's afflicted by things, and uh, so flesh can be used that way. Uh, but the idea of what we're talking about is that it's this mode of existence that all humanity is dominated by, and it's this sort of sinful disposition that rejects God and his values and truths. It's, I can do things my own way. We've exchanged the glory of God to worship the creation rather than the creator. It's this curse that God has placed on all creation and certainly affects human beings. It's why good people do bad things. It's why we have sin and evil and even death in our world because of this whole issue of the flesh. And it is something that affects us all deeply and personally. It affects our common sense, it affects our emotions, it affects our logic and our reasoning. It, it affects every part of who we are as individuals. And there's no freedom from it apart from stepping into a relationship with Christ, who doesn't just snap his fingers and we never have to deal with it again. You just have to hang around Christians long enough and you know that's not a reality. But the issue is, is that once we trust Christ, he gives us the power and the resources for us to learn how to live differently than that. I always sort of take shot at the people who thinks that, well, Christians are hypocrites because they think they're perfect. Well, I don't know any level-headed, normal, spiritual-thinking Christian that thinks they're perfect. But the issue is, is we're now learning how to live under a new authority in our life so that we learn how to live with his values, his beliefs, his principles, but sometimes we suck at learning things. And so it takes time for us to learn that. The second enemy that we deal with is the world, and that doesn't mean people are so much the enemy, but the value system of the world is antithetical to God. It doesn't take long to interact with people in the world where they live under the flesh, this separation from God, and you discover that they have to figure out life apart from God. So they create their own gods, they reshape reality into their own means because they need to find some way to have purpose and self-worth and significance. I mean, it's an ongoing battle of everyone. 
You, all you have to do is read the book of Ecclesiastes and, and Solomon, I believe, who wrote it, captures the reality of humanity and everyone who lives under the sun, so to speak, that life is vain and empty. And he's a guy that tested every possible solution to it. He tested riches and wealth and sexuality and all these kinds of things. And, and he says there's this fleeting sense of temporary exhilaration, but it doesn't last. And everything is vain and empty. And it's because we live in a world that is subject to the, the, the curse and the flesh. And, and it's a world that is groping to find purpose apart from the creator. And then, of course, we have Satan, who is a personal enemy of God and a personal enemy of God. He's not just a fictitious creator, a creation of cartoons. He is a real entity who is at war with God and humanity. And so when Jesus gets to this whole issue and he talks about that the problem is from within, he's talking about this flesh that affects our life. And most importantly, it affects the heart. Now, I don't mean physical heart by any means, that if the heart is really this invisible disposition we every human being has because every human being is stamped with the image of God. Um, get into these discussions about different races of people and so on and so forth. I don't like the terminology. I think there is only one race of human beings, period. There isn't different races of human beings like some are inferior to others. There's one single race we're humans, and we're all humans. It doesn't matter what your ethnic group is, we all have supreme value because we're created in the image of God. But the issue is, we're not good because of the flesh, because of sin, because of separation, because we are ungodly. That Romans tells us that we're enemies of God and we can't fix this problem on our own. To say nothing of the fact that the world has developed a whole system of looking at life that doesn't include God, and Satan is right there at their doorstep trying to reinforce it. But this affects our heart. It's, a, it's that place, that invisible element that makes you uniquely you, but it's where our rational thought takes place. It's where our emotions come from. We tend to separate these things. Rational thought up here, heart is emotions. Well, it's a fairly complicated process to get down to the nuggets of the image of God created in us, but in the Old Testament especially, heart referred to that whole sense of consciousness. My emotions, my thought life, my rationality, my common sense comes from the heart, and it's been affected. Old Testament is a great place to get a picture of this. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every person according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So the first thing we learn is that we can't even trust our own hearts. We live in a world where it's like follow your heart and trust your heart and trust how you feel about life and so people make decisions based on how they feel. When your heart's broken and it's sick and dysfunctional and it's deteriorated because of sin and corroded because of the toxicity of things that Jesus is gonna talk about here. Hey, I might feel great about making this direction, but you can't trust your heart because it's sick. There's a sickness that affects heart. Secondly, our hearts need to be changed for them to be healthy and whole. And it, they're unfixable on our own. I mean, we're in the chain of command of thousands and thousands of years of people who've come before us, and nobody, we, we've got technology that solves all kinds of things. 
We're stepping into AI that's going to be able to replace us all so we don't have a purpose to live other than go golfing or something. <laughs> I could live with that, maybe. But, but the idea is, it's, is that no matter how technologically humanity has become because of the image of God, we can't fix our heart. It's impossible for us to fix our heart. And there's no way that we'll be able to do it. But the danger is, is that we often create the problem of religion, of traditions that help us try to make sense of life. Whether it's from a human perspective or from a religious perspective, it's easy to create rules and regulations and traditions and teachings because this is the way we interpret life. This is what our experience looks like. And then yet, but we have to realize that's not God's perspective. Our heart is desperately sick. It needs healing. It needs some kind of medication that goes beyond simply what we've been able to develop in our technology. It's a healing touch from Christ. And if we step even further back into the Old Testament, what Jesus is going to drive at in this particular text is this basic principle out of 1 Samuel. Remember when Samuel was going to anoint David king? David's family paraded all his brothers in front of him. He wasn't even invited to the party. And Samuel went, there's the guy right there, and that's got to be him. And God says, no, because here's the problem. The Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And the Pharisees and scribes had completely lost sight of that. They, they said, we want people to obey God's word, and we want to protect them from breaking it. And so out of safety, we're going to create a bunch of other rules and practices and traditions that you need to do in order to be acceptable with God. We've already seen in the first 13 verses how they were in a bit of a spit fight with Jesus because the disciples didn't wash their hands properly. And it's amazing that individuals can start trying to micromanage people's lives right down to how you're supposed to wash your hands in order to be spiritual, in order to be godly. What are really the essentials? What, what, what's really important? Well, everybody has their own convictions and the danger is, is well, this is what is important to me, so therefore it needs to be important to others. But in all of this, there's a real danger that we start creating our own traditions. The idea of defilement, at least for the Pharisees and scribes, was a little different than what Jesus ends up talking about. Defilement is a condition that the first and foremost has been infected and dominates the control. That, that's the way God would look at it. The problem with the Pharisees is they looked at it as keeping the rules and the regulations of the religious community. You've got to wash your hands a certain way, you got to wash the pots and pans a certain way. They had all kinds of traditions and teachings that they passed off as this was what God wants, but had nothing to do with the heartbeat of God's truth and God's commands. Now remember, the context is that the religion of the Pharisees and scribes dealt primarily with external things, not the inward reality of the heart. Now you might be saying, well Brad, that's all good, and what, is, what does that have to do with me? Well, let me suggest to you that while there are lots of individuals that I've run into in the Christian, my Christian walk, there's lots of churches that I've run into where they develop certain convictions about what Christians should do and not do, and they're really quick to pass judgment on people that don't meet up to those particular convictions. I mean, I grew up in the 70s and the 60s and all those kinds of good times, and we had all kinds of discussions about what was right and wrong for Christians. 
You know, everything from drinking to whatever it had, how long you were supposed to wear your hair. It might be out of your realm and of experience, but that was what it was. A lot of churches, it was about how you dressed and what was spiritual music and worship and those kinds of things. All those things took a big hit as they transitioned from traditional worship to more contemporary worship, whatever we call it. And we're still going through it. There's all kinds of issues in our culture and in our, in our own Christian circles that help say, what is the spiritual response? What does God really want in terms of how we're supposed to act? When it's dealing with this idea that the disciples are saying that the disciples and Jesus was allowing them to defile themselves, what, what does that mean? Definition would be this, to cause something to become unclean, profane, or ritually unacceptable, to make unclean or to defile. The Pharisees developed their own traditions and practices in terms of what Jews and others had to do to keep themselves accepted by God. One commentary put it this way, in a number of languages it is quite impossible to translate literally the concept of unclean or defilement for physical cleanliness and ritual acceptability are completely unrelated. In some languages, it is necessary to translate these words as to take away something's whole, the holiness of something. So if something defiled itself or it was unclean, you'd take away, even if it was a temporary thing, they're not holy anymore. They have to do something to fix themselves before they can go to worship or they can go back into the temple or offer a sacrifice. Well, we've got that in our own lives, and what I want to suggest to you is, in order for this to land in your lap, I suppose, is I want to give you some ideas of the difference between religion that deals with externals and spirituality that deals with the heart. And in some respects, all you have to do is do that. There's externals, and those are good, and some of them aren't necessarily bad, but if they don't transform the heart, they're not doing what they ought to do. So let me step on everyone's toes and walk through this a little bit. I believe religious Bible study, for example, it's all about answering, I think there's some great tools out there, but sometimes the goal of Bible study is about getting the right answers. I think the idea of spirituality is does that Bible study actually change the desire of someone's heart? I know people that won't even pick up a Bible study tool anymore because the idea of just filling in the right answers is almost abhorrent because this isn't gonna change anything in my life. Well, in part, I get it because we have become addicted to the idea that if you get through a Bible study, the goal is to get through it and get the answers right regardless of if it makes a difference to a person's life. So I understand that sentiment, but on the other hand, I'm gonna say, well, listen, this still gives us truth from God's word as we study it. Why is it so impossible for you to take that and allow the spirit of God to start changing your heart with it so it does make a difference? And so we can do Bible studies till the cows come home, and if we're not doing it as leaders in a sense to say, they need to, their heart needs to feel this, their heart needs to hear this, we need to do this study in such a way that a person allows the Spirit of God to start taking that truth and pinning it to their heart so that they see something needs to change. And then they've got this willingness, because of what the Spirit of God's doing, to say, all right, Lord, this is not the way I do things. This is not the way I intuitively 
treat my spouse or I relate to people, but I need you to change something that's impossible for me to change and I'm willing to go through a journey to allow you to change my heart. A lot has to do with attitude. I love Bible studies. I don't care whether it's a tool or not. Bible studies can be great. But if I'm not concerned if I lead a Bible study about this has to get to people's heart because I don't care anymore what people know. Now take that with a grain of salt. I do care a little bit. But the problem is, is we've got a whole culture of Christians who simply brag about what they know and nothing's changing their heart. So we've created our own sense of religion where we go through the motions and and yet we're not shepherding truth to our heart. Now, we can can beat up the leaders, but listen, there's a ton of personal responsibility that you have when you hear truth. It's not up to leaders to make your heart change. That's impossible. The reality is, I have to be attentive enough to truth. I have to be open enough to the Spirit of God where I'm saying, all right, God, this doesn't match the way I live. What do you need from me so that you can change my heart? I I love memorizing scripture. And I love it a lot. I've memorized enough verses to choke half an elephant. And the fact is, nobody cares if it doesn't make a difference in the way I live. And the danger is that the religion of our time is How many verses can we memorize? The question I have is, how is it changing your heart? I'll take a person who memorizes one verse and spends three months exploring with God how that needs to change their heart than a person who can memorize 100 verses and nothing happens. Discipleship, that's what we're about. And I love the idea of disciplines because I know how scattered our lives are. And I, as you move from one generation to the next, the whole idea of discipline either gets more abhorrent or you love it more. It, it sort of depends. I've got two kids around the age of 30. We have all kinds of fun discussions about things like disciplines. And they're, I'm constantly saying, well, here's the way I would do it. And they go, yeah, Dad, I'd never do it that way. Why, what way are you doing it? Well, the favorite answer I get is, well... I think at some point it'll just happen. Okay. And I do, but we'll do this. It's like, how many times did you read your Bible this week? Well, I'm really spiritual because I read my Bible six times this week. You only read it three times? What I want to know is how has that time in God's word Deepen your desire for God. I don't care how many times you're in it. I want to care about how does it change your desire for Jesus. Because we can create our own religion that here's the number of times that you need, and I can base it on places like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, the man who is blessed meditates on God's words day and night. So I can make an argument to say, well, you should be actually in God's word seven days a week. Well, that would make sense. But the goal isn't to count how many times you're in the word, the time is how is that fueling and energizing your desire for God above everything else? Parenting. Parenting can default to 
And uh, we could do this all day, but anyway. Parenting can default to just do what I say, I don't care what you think. And I can make my kids do exactly what my authority will inflict upon them. And then sometimes we wonder that when kids get older, they like abandon the faith because we haven't shepherded their heart. We've just forced them into our religious convictions and behavior patterns that we want because we're trying to bring some order out of the chaos they're creating in my life. And so we can have our own set of traditions and rules about how we parent that actually hinders our kids from embracing the reality of Jesus and all that he is because we're more concerned about their behaviors than we are about the condition of their heart. We do that with friendships. I was trying to figure out a way to explain this this week. I was kind of comparing it, my wife and I like to go on vacation as all of you do, we go to resorts and there's two different kinds of resorts. One are sort of resorts that are a la carte. You get there but then you have to pay for activities and meals and all this kind of stuff. And then you have all-inclusive resorts where you get there and everything's included. The food, all the drinks that you want, the activities are all there. And I kept thinking, you know, guys and their friendships are kind of like resorts a la carte. If I need something from you, I'll come and get it. But otherwise, stay out of my way. Women, I think, are much more like all-inclusive. Hey, if you're my friend, you need to include me in everything you're doing. Because otherwise, you're not my friend. I thought I was your best friend. How come you're not inviting me to this? Well, I guess it works a little bit anyway. It was a shot. Took a shot at it. But we can set up our own set of little religion that has nothing to do with what the Bible says about being a biblical friend, about what we think our friends should be doing for us, as opposed to how we ought to be living out and being a friend to the people around us. Do you get the idea where we're going with this? See, we, we, we sort of cast all these traditions and stuff to the legalistic churches and the fundamental churches and all those things, and if you've grown up in that, it can be pretty caustic. And it teaches you to think in ways that isn't healthy. It's all about rules and numbers and appearances and whether we get the approval from other people. But Jesus then gives us this list and he says, listen, it's not whether you wash your hands properly, it's not whether you wear the right clothes, it's not really on a worship service where they're doing it the right way because they're playing the right kind of songs and using the right kind of, the issue with worship is um, am I living the right kind of life? That's what Romans 12 says. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. And so we all have this danger that we can step into our own religion and traditions and personal convictions that's not really what God's truth wants from us, but it's where we feel comfortable, where we feel safe. And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not the heart of the matter at all. The heart of the matter is, in this one, happens to be stated neg- negatively, is that it's not your clothes you wear, it's not the food you eat that defiles you, And by the way, I think his statement about making all foods clean was basically taking a shot at the Pharisees saying, hey, it's not just an issue of food. I'm declaring that all your traditions, all your practices and your rituals and all those, none of them are helpful. People can dress the way they want. They can eat whatever they want, which is good because I eat pretty much everything I see. And so Jesus then says, listen, let, let me tell you what the real problem is. 
What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. The list goes on. And, it, and it's deeply penetrating. But the principle here is this. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. When our tendency is we want to blame our spouse, we want to blame our friends, we want to blame the system, we want to blame the church, we want to blame a lot of different things, but for many of us what Jesus is saying is that we are our own worst enemy. It's our heart. It's not anybody else's fault. Quit blaming everybody else. Quit blaming everything else. You have a sinful heart that is flooded with this stuff and the only solution is Jesus. Because defilement is not about the externals being right. It's the problem of our heart not being right. Look at this list of problems that come from the heart. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, the rest of them. Notice three of them happen to do with sexual issues. One of the biggest problems of our culture is just the flagrant disregard and respect for God's word that says that this idea of sexual intimacy ought to be in the context of marriage. There's others here like murder and adultery. <laughs> Read those and I go, okay, haven't done any of those. But if I really want to get to the heart of the matter, I have to listen to what Matthew said, Jesus said in Matthew, where he says, listen, you've heard the saying, don't murder anybody. Yeah, it's a really good biblical thought, comes out of the Old Testament, I think we can substantiate that. But there's people going, well, okay, I don't need to worry about that. But then Jesus simply says, well, listen, if you've been angry with your brother, you're still guilty. Kind of like, wait, wait a minute. Murdering somebody, just being angry with somebody doesn't compare to murdering somebody. And then he goes on and says, well, but if you insult somebody, you know, our normal, typical stuff when someone cups us off on the, on the highway, you idiot, get out of the way. You're stupid. We have no problem dishing out our verbal judgment on individuals. And Jesus says, listen, if you do that, you're still guilty. Because the issue here is a matter of the heart for God, not whether it's the outward external reality. He looks at our heart and says, listen, if you're getting angry, that same principle of anger is what causes people to murder other people. I mean, it might be volcano size compared to yours, but it's the same problem of the heart. But we go, well, yeah, but I control my anger. I'm not lashing out at people. Well, you go ahead and take that argument to Jesus and good luck with that. Because we have all kinds of ways to rationalize our own religion and our own tradition by saying, oh, well, of course, this is not nearly as bad as this. And that tells me we've created our own traditions where we've justified the sin of our own heart because we don't want to sound as bad as the people who actually go out and do some of this stuff. Of course, he talks about adultery the same way. Oh, well, I haven't done that, but if any person thinks about adultery in their own heart, they've, they've committed it. So Jesus takes us on a level that's just literally off the charts for us. Because what Jesus wants to do, he wants to get to the heart of the matter. He wants us to live out our Christian life out of our heart that should be purified and cleansed by the presence of Jesus. 
Because the danger in life is that we create this religious facade, this appearance that I have my act together because I don't do all these external things, but nobody gets a chance to look at our hearts. Albert Einstein made this comment. Evil is the real problem in the hearts and minds of people. It is not a problem of physics, but of ethics. It is easier to denature plutonium than to denature the evil spirit of people. Scott Peck made this comment. People do not need Satan to recruit them to evil. They are quite capable of recruiting themselves. We usually don't need any help. It doesn't make it easier that he's on the front lines aggravating and exacerbating the anger and the frustration and the lust of our heart. St. Francis of Sales says this, to live according to the spirit is to think, speak, and act according to the virtues that are in the spirit and not according to the senses and sentiments which are of the flesh. So even as Christians, we still have to deal with this alien thing called the flesh in us. Hopefully the core of our being is filled up with the righteousness of Jesus and the power and presence of his spirit so that we learn to choose to live righteous lives rather than giving in to things that we don't have to live that way anymore. Dallas Willard made this statement. Put everything you have into the care of your heart for it determines what your life amounts to. Sounds a little daunting. And I want to leave you with two things. First John 3 makes this statement. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That's when we were enemies and ungodly. And in many ways, you might say abhorrent to a righteous and perfect God, but he reminds us of the incredible love that God has demonstrated to us, that we should actually be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will be has not yet been, a, uh, we don't get it yet, which has not been a, uh, appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, the secret of this is not trying harder or knuckling down trying to manage my own heart. The issue is we've got to, every single day, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The personal, ongoing presence of Jesus is what's sufficient for us to live in a way that honors his righteousness and his grace. I ran into a story of Olivia, who was five years old, and her best friend, Claire, were in a nativity play at school. Claire was playing Mary, and Olivia was an angel, but before the show, one of the young little boys was going around. He happened to be a sheep, so he was going around saying, I'm a sheep, what are you doing? And people, the kids would, out of respect, you know, tell them what they were doing. And the boy finally came to Claire and repeated the question to her. She says, I'm a sheep, what are you? And Claire simply said, well, I'm Mary. And suddenly the boy realized he'd been outranked. <laughs> and, he, and in order to justify his own position, he says, well, you know, it's really hard to be a sheep. Claire creatively looked back at him and instantly said, it's also hard being a virgin. 
You know, sometimes the greatest struggle of our life is because we can't get out of our own way and trust the power of Jesus to change our heart, not just force us into a set of behaviors and rules that really will ultimately never change our heart. It's not just hard, it's impossible apart from Christ. The heart of the issue is that God wants us to live out of a heart that's attached to his righteousness and his love and his grace and his peace and his holiness. And the greatest thing is that we all struggle with it and we have a father who not only loves us and we're greatly loved, but he forgives. He dusts us off and he says, listen, walk with me and I'll teach you how to live according to my grace. That may be where you are this morning. Maybe you've spent your whole life conforming to religion and you've never discovered the personal relationship with Christ and I invite you that even in your own way, you can right where you're at just simply say, God, I've got the religion figured out but I realize that's not what you want. You want my heart. And so I ask you to forgive me of my sin and I want to be a child of God and I want to begin this journey of learning how you want me to live, not how I've tried to impress people. Whatever it looks like for you this morning, we have a throne of grace where he can help us in time of need. If you don't get to the heart of the matter in your own life, this Christian life is going to be a massive struggle. Eventually, it'll become empty and hollow and meaningless, and you'll just walk away. Father, thank you that you care about us more than we even realize. It's not just that the gospel says that you loved us when we were your enemies and separated from you and that we were hostile to anything that you would offer. But once we've trusted Christ and we've been removed from your judgment and we've been given the righteousness of Christ, in other words, we have a perfect righteous standing before you as children of God, we know that's not the end of the journey. And I pray, Father, that rather than just giving the appearance to ourselves in the mirror that we've got our act together, that we would learn that for you, the heart of the matter is the condition of our heart. For some of us, that means we might need to come before your throne of grace and confess these things that clutter up our heart. We've given permission for sin to keep rummaging around and indulging in it in a way because we've convinced ourselves it doesn't really hurt anybody and nobody really needs about it and it's not that big a deal and we pray that your spirit will crash our heart with your love and grace and mercy and say, there's freedom from this. Because Father, we don't want to live half-baked lives that conform to the traditions of men. We want to live by the power of the Spirit of God. Help us where we're at, we pray in Christ's name, amen.